podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hi there, it's Simon Hughes and Simon Mann here with the Analyst Inside Cricket, looking ahead to the two test series in New Zealand, between New Zealand and England, starting very late Wednesday night, or I suppose you call it Thursday morning, one in the morning, English time, the pink ball test in Auckland, followed by a day test in Christchurch. Simon, you've been uh, watching the, the warm-up games. Before we come into how England might approach those two tests, I should just mention that later in the programme we're going to hear from somebody that I think is probably the best commentator in the world, on cricket anyway, and who also holds an unusual record. He holds the highest score made by a test match number nine. So see if you can guess who maybe that is. But first, Simon, you've been watching the, uh, the two warm-up games, or is it just one warm-up game with about... Three innings per batsman each day. It was a bizarre event. Well, it was. It was. It felt really unsatisfactory as a watcher. I suppose the players must have got quite a lot out of it. You know, being out there in the middle, two two-day games. The first match with a pink ball, and the second match with a red ball, which is a bit odd, really, because England are going into a pink ball test match, and they had the first two days were pink ball, and then and then red ball, but. You know, it was really odd, and also, you know, the the agreement before the game was that one side would bat all day, and then the next day the other side would bat all day, and then it alternated for the second match. I hope you're still with me. So you had a situation where you know, teams would lose 14 wickets in the day, so you had a you know bizarre scoreboard at the end of the day saying something like 315 for 14 or, or whatever it was. And so, inevitably, I mean, you 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 must understand this. Inevitably, as a as a bowler, as a as a batsman, you you didn't have that that same motivation as when you're trying to win a game. So it, it was it was really peculiar in a way. I, I mean, I suppose they got something out of it. Root made a hundred on the final day of the match. England bowled better in the second match on the first day of it, but the, the first match. With the pink ball, England didn't bowl particularly well and they didn't bat particularly well. I suppose you could say, well, it was early tour rustiness. But four days' preparation for a test series. I know some of the players have been playing in the one-day series, so half the squad playing in the one-day series and half not. So I suppose that the, the one-day players will be ready for a, a test match or ready for the competitiveness of international cricket. But you just wonder about some of the players you know, who've come into it quite cold, really. I'm thinking of someone like... James Vince, who, who had three failures, basically, over the four days. I suppose the question is, is he going to play? If Ben Stokes is not fit to bowl, then Vince's place is, is under under threat because Stokes will play as a batsman only and they'll bring in a, a fourth seamer. But, you know, someone like Vince didn't have a great time. It's someone like Stoneman, who didn't make 50 in, in any of his three innings. So there are some question marks for England going into the Test match, clearly. Actually, uh, a couple of thoughts about that. Is that. Firstly, maybe some of the New Zealand players won't be that ready for test cricket, having played a lot of one-day cricket recently. So perhaps that sort of evens up the odds. And also, you know, in a way, it, so, it shows why quite often at the moment home teams win test series because the preparation for the visiting team is so spasmodic or short or slightly erratic, as in this case, uh, you know, with these two two two-day games where batsmen can be out and then come straight back in pretty much. Uh, So I suppose it does show that preparation is so important in Test cricket, especially, 
And if you don't get the preparation right, you, you generally lose the series. It's going to be uh, tough for England to, to try and figure out, really, what their best team is. Still, they aren't sure. I, I guess you're saying they're going to start with Stoneman and Cook, obviously, opening the batting. But Stoneman's really got to make an impression in these two tests or he's going to be out of the team come come the summer. Uh, Cook, obviously, you know, still probably feels good after his big score in Melbourne. But then Vince, number three, hasn't really made a convincing case for himself. Milan sort of breathing down his neck at, at number five seems to me a more obvious choice at number three. And you've also had Liam Livingston, who, who made a good account of himself in that first game as well. Absolutely. And you look at Liam Livingston, his first class average, far more convincing than those of Stoneman or Vince, which obviously gives him confidence. He's 24 years of age. He's going to captain Lancashire next summer or this coming summer, which you know is a, is a big confidence booster as well. He averages 46 in first class cricket. I mean, he's the one player of late that England have picked who, who does have a really good first class average. So he's got that confidence behind him. He, he batted very well the other day. He's got a a sort of pugnaciousness about his batting, a wristiness about his batting as well, which is, I mean, not exactly similar, but it's sort of slightly reminiscent of Kevin Peterson, the way he plays, sort of a flex through the onside, a wristiness about his batting. Anyway, so he's he made runs, he took his chance. He didn't get more than one chance, but he took it. He made 88 in his one innings on tour. And, you know, those two players I mentioned, Stoneman and Vince, didn't make those many runs in three innings so I mean do England gamble probably not I mean I sense from the team that they picked for the second match that they are pretty much sticking with the template that didn't work in Australia which is you know Cook and Stoneman and Vince and then Root Milan obviously Stokes comes into the side in place of well the fourth seamer who played in Australia, which was Ball and, and Curran and Overton. And then as far as the, the fifth test is concerned, Wokes didn't play in that and Crane did. Then Wokes comes back for Crane. And so you'll have Moen Alley and Bairstow, Wokes, Broad, Anderson. Uh, you know, essentially, basically the same template they played in Australia, but of course with the, the major bonus, huge bonus of having Ben Stokes back in the side. Just a question mark about whether he's going to be fit to bowl or not. He does certainly really improve the balance of the team and uh, obviously there's that uh, presence on the field as well. Jimmy Anderson was talking about the Ashes recently and saying that they didn't have anybody in the dressing room who had that sort of forceful personality to galvanise the team and and get them to to deal with adversity, get them to deal with a poor situation and sort of almost grab the team by the scruff of their neck and that's the the, the impact that Stokes can have. It's also nice to see, actually, that almost by default, England have got a spinner out there who probably deserved to be in the Ashes tour, Jack Leach from Somerset, who outbowled Mason Crane in the Lions trip to the West Indies. Mason Crane's gone home injured. Poor guy, I feel sorry for him because he's obviously an incredibly promising cricketer. But in a way, the right man, because he's been so consistent in county cricket, uh, has actually got an opportunity, probably not in Auckland, but perhaps in Christchurch. Well, that's going to be the difficulty for him. He's forcing his way into the side. You're right, I can't see him playing in Auckland. The short, straight boundaries, he's fresh off the plane. Not easy at all to come straight into a test match. I remember Alistair Cook, actually, though, for his first test match, a bit different for a batsman. Alistair Cook, remember, came from a Caribbean tour straight into the test match in Nagpur and did very well indeed. So there there is a a slight precedent for that because Leach has been playing on the Lions tour in the Caribbean. If he is going to play, it's far more likely 
that he'll play in Christchurch, bigger ground, and there was some turn during the one-day match that was played there. But, I mean, I suspect that England will just go with the, with the template set down of the four seamers plus Mo and Ali. That, that seems to be the likely way they'll, they'll approach it here. It's a question of whether they might throw in Livingston for, for Vince in the second test match if Vince doesn't do well in the first test match. But, you know, I can't see a huge amount of change. But we were talking about this last week on the podcast, that if, if Stokes were to bat at five, then it does free a place lower down for England to play a second spinner or a first spinner, if you consider that Mo and Ali is the second spinner. Well, certainly the England bowling attack with the addition of Stokes is going to give the New Zealanders some problems, especially with the pink ball. Now, I'm going to reveal who that number nine was who made the highest test score at that spot in a test match. And it was Ian Smith of New Zealand who made 173 in a test match against Pakistan, just outstripping Stuart Broad's 169, actually, against Pakistan, also batting at number nine. And I've been talking to Ian Smith, who, of course, is now a very well-known commentator, about how the New Zealanders are inspired by the success of the All Blacks. I have no doubt that uh, the standard of excellence and you know the world champion status of the All Blacks is a real. Um, it's a real thing for for all sporting teams in our country to look up to. You, you, you left out the America's Cup. We won the America's Cup um, on the ocean, which is you know the greatest um, trophy in, in world yachting. So we currently hold that. Uh, you know, and, and our netball is a competitor. It's just, uh, I, uh, it's a determination, it's a will, um, and it's an appreciation of, of I think, of, of what you're doing, not taking it for granted. And, mate, I, I, I don't know, I, I don't think, you know, when I'm, when I'm trying to look out, out for answers for you and just give you a plain and simple, easy one, I, there isn't one because... I'm 61 years of age, and I've always thought the same way in this country, is that I don't think we do punch above our weight. I, I think we just do as, as well as we possibly can do and see how that, how that ends up. I think there was a long time, um, uh, particularly in cricket, where... And I remember Bob Willis uh, at the Oval one day uh, making a presentation. Uh, we just won a test match or a test series at the Oval, and, uh, and I got the impression that Bob was, um, in as nice as possible way, was not really... Um, appreciating the fact that New Zealand won, it was more the case that England had lost. And I, I think we went through that for a long period of time. Australia always regarded us as a tiny little brother. In fact, they didn't really bother with us for Test cricket till about the mid-1970s. Uh, and so, look, we we always think we win. But there was a, I think there's a, a great feeling amongst the bigger playing Test nations that uh, they lost to us rather than we beat them. And, and I know it almost sounds a bit silly, but I think there's a lot of that. There was a lot of that around in those days, but I'm not quite sure it's there now. What about this current New Zealand side? Who do you pick out, the test side? Who do you pick out as someone to look out for? Well, we've got Williamson and Taylor. Uh, I, do, I genuinely believe now that, um, I mean, Kane Williamson has, in the last two to three years, has been put in the same sort of bracket as, uh, as Root, as, uh, as Smith and Coley. I think Smith and Coley have, um, and maybe Root to a certain extent, have maybe just nudged ahead of Kane Williamson, but I still believe he's a, a world-class player and, and he's got a great technique and a great head. But I also put Ross Taylor alongside with him now because his numbers match up with the, some of the very best in the world. So... Uh, if I go into this test series um, and they have four series, then, then England will win easily. If they play well, New Zealand will have a decent base to attack. And 
uh, to me, that they are the two keys. And I, I would think if, uh, if England, and I, I imagine they are, are doing a lot of planning around this test series, they'll spend more time on Williamson and Taylor than they will anybody else. How is New Zealand cricket overall? Um, you know, we're worried in this country, in England, by obviously the in general pressure on the game and loss of interest and people's lack of attention span, meaning Test cricket is under threat. What about New Zealand cricket? How is it perceived in the public eye? Well, there's, there's those that are, you know, obviously the demographic of people going to cricket is changing and they... So therefore, they don't want to spend six, seven hours there a day. We'll get good crowds for the stay night test match, but that's probably a false reading on um, where test cricket's really at. We're only going to play four test matches at home every 12 months now, it seems. A couple of series of two test matches. So um, whilst it's still the pinnacle and you ask any guy who's an up-and-comer, you know, what's the goal? He'd like to be a test cricketer, I'm sure, still wear the black cap. Um, look, what the problem is <clears throat> that we're little brother at the board table at the ICC. We, we really do have to play follow the leader. And we're not self-sufficient, so we do rely on um, uh, a lot on overseas television money, principally Indian money. So, therefore, we fall into line. And, and you know, OK, uh, we've got a lot of players that uh, want to get into that IPL and shore themselves up for the future. You cannot blame a kid for wanting to do that. Uh, so we're, we're probably even less... Um, uh, pointed towards test cricket than you are. So, yeah, I'm worried. As a traditionalist, a lot of people are worried about it because they still love, absolutely love, test, cherish test cricket. But we can't do anything about it. I mean, the, we traded a test match against the West Indies for a couple of one days. The CEO of New Zealand Cricket said the reason why, we simply can't afford to stage that test match. He said it was going to cost us around $600,000 to stage a test match, whereas we can profit out of two or three one-dayers instead. So that's, mate, that's pretty much summed up where we're at. Well, some slightly pessimistic thoughts from Ian Smith at the end of that chat there about the future of Test cricket. We're all having to deal with that issue at the moment. Of course, there's a the story circulating around at the moment in English cricket about the payments promised to some grounds for not staging Test cricket, international grounds like Cardiff and also the Aegeus Bowl in Southampton, who kind of vaguely, it seems as if they agreed to not bid for Test cricket in return for some one-day matches, the ability to host the T20 tournament starting in 2020 and a bit of a payment as well as sort of compensation and one or two county executives are a little bit to myth that that story wasn't exactly aired properly in the committees and, and discussions that they were having and Andy Nash, the Somerset former chairman, has actually resigned from his position on the ECB board dealing with this new tournament because he feels that the levels of corporate governance have rather declined. Anyway, that's a story that's going to run and run with the county chairman meeting up. After the break, we're going to talk about commentary and how you can get better at it. Welcome back, and we're going to talk in this half about the art of commentary, both radio and TV. I wonder, you listeners, whether you have your own favourite commentator. I'm sure you do. Uh, probably you have your least favourite commentator as well. I hope it's not one of us. 
But um, what is the art of commentary and, and what makes a commentator good and what makes a commentator bad indeed? I guess, you know, the first thing is knowledge. And for me, actually, it's enthusiasm. I think that, that if I can listen to someone who sounds enthusiastic about their sport, then it, it's, it draws you in. And that's why, you know, some ex-cricketers who are now commentators almost uh, because they couldn't think of anything better to do or because they're very well paid don't sound that enthusiastic they sound a bit bored and and I think that makes them poor commentators the ones that are really lively and energetic and always seem enthused I don't know I think a, a person like NASA Hussein always sounds very excited about being at a game and therefore it's it's quite infectious what about you Simon well, there's a differentiation, isn't there, between television and radio. I mean, I can talk mainly about radio, and even within radio, there's, there are two different roles. My role is to describe, basically, and my job is to get the best out of the person who's sitting next to me, who is the expert, and to nudge sometimes, sometimes to ask a question, sometimes just to let them develop their own thoughts naturally, just to get that expertise out of them, to, to tell the listener something they don't know. I always feel, I always say that to summarizers new summarizers on, on test match special or on one day internationals people you work with for the first time i say tell us something we don't know tell us something we can't see you played the game you've been inside the dressing room you know the tactics you can see the game developing out there tell me something i don't know tell the listener something they don't know tell us something interesting about the game and that that's the advice i give to them and i i hope that's really useful when you, you come to listen to them my favourite, uh, undoubtedly, over the last 20 years has been that man Ian Smith we heard from before. He worked on the Channel 4 coverage of, of Test Cricket in the early 2000s, and we had him every year because he did have that enthusiasm, he had that knowledge, he had great turns of phrase. He always worked every day at trying to find a new way of describing something. He had a sometimes a left-field view, but he just generally had this sort of uplifting presence, and he was always excited about being able to commentate on cricket. He realised it was a, a wonderful job to have. He was also quite rude about me. Every time they handed down to the analyst uh, in the truck in between overs, he would normally say, yeah, right, it's time to go down to the analyst, uh, so why don't you go and make a cup of tea? But uh, he certainly, for me, is is the guy that just nails it more often than anybody else. And he's just a, a very compelling listen. And so I thought I'd ask him exactly what he thought made a good commentator. I would say, say 70% of what you were going to say. In other words, just space it out a bit more. I mean, the best in the business, yours was, was Richie. Richie Benno, without doubt, the best in the business. Um, and he was often reminding people that we are in the business of pictures and in the, the viewers are not absolutely stupid and they do have the ability to make up their own minds. So my advice to um, a lot of guys and, and gals, we've got a few gals on our commentary team now, is, is to just let it breathe a bit and, and just say, don't say something that's just been said, don't say something that is clearly obvious uh, just, you know, tone it down a wee bit and put more value in what you're saying rather than just spreading it out to fill a hole. Every time I go to cricket, I want to try and discover something more or explain something better than I did the day before or come up with a theory that comes off. I mean, that, to me, that's the, the great joy of commentating. And there's, if you don't want to go out and be damn good at something, um, then don't do it, really. Give, it, give someone else a go. I'm surprised you said that because... Um 
I, I was someone who always sort of applied that, certainly in terms of TV. I tried to be better than the day before and explain something better than the day before. And you were just always really rude to me. So how do you explain that? Well, because, you know, I know a bit about you. That's why. Um, you know, and, and whilst, you know, I, I can sit back and admire some of the theories that you came up with as the analyst and uh, Channel 4's brilliant production... Um, you know, I was the same. I was the other bloke that, you know, had a beer with you at night and listened to the crap that you talked then. So, I mean, you have to find a balance, Joss. That's the thing, you know. And, you know, you can't, I can't put you up on a pedestal all the time. I mean, you did come up with some absolute gems every now and then. So some good thoughts there from Ian Smith. He mentioned Richie Benno, who was a, a massive influence on me, actually, not just in the way that he commentated, but actually also in just his interest in the game. He used to turn up every day, every morning early, and sit in the corner and do his little bits of research. He always had his laws of cricket handy to refer to, you know, little kind of pithy moments which needed a, a little bit of clarification. But it was, it was amazing, actually. He would be immersed in his laptop, emailing and looking at articles about the game as the game was going on and you thought he was completely immersed in his laptop but then he'd suddenly look up uh, out of the corner of his eye just say mm, that was a marvellous shot or something like that and he really had his eye on the game even though he was looking at uh, other information all the time what about you who was your favourite? I think there are quite a lot of people working within the game who are, who are really compelling to listen to. I mean, on television, I like listening to Nasser Hussain. You, you mentioned him because as a former England captain, as someone who's deeply knowledgeable about the game, they tell you things that you don't already know. I mean, I've watched the game for, you know, since the early 70s and you think you know or you think you've seen quite a lot and yet I listen to Nasser and somebody think, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Mike Atherton as well, I think, is, is an excellent television commentator. Again, that deep knowledge of the game because they tell you things that you haven't automatically seen i like bumble david lloyd because of that of that humor i mean just in terms of of commentary i think that 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 balance you need that knowledge but also i like storytellers as well people that can tell you an interesting story i mean i'm sure everyone listening will agree with me when they're listening to the radio or the television and someone starts on a story have i told you about the time when that happened and you immediately stop because it's just a bit different you think someone's going to tell me a story and we love stories we grow up with stories as, as kids we grow up with stories you know our, our mums and dads reading us stories in bed before we go to sleep at night it's, it's just part of who we are as humans i think that we just love stories and i think that's a really important part of cricket commentary probably works better on the radio than on television because the pictures tell the story was on radio you've got to tell the stories yourself i think in terms of radio commentary i think that the sort of fundamentals of it are you, you've got to try to imagine what it's like to be the listener and what they want to know and i i think it's that that's accuracy about what's going on i don't think it's good enough just to say such and such comes up to bowl and it's played away into the onside. I think they, they want to know where that fielder is, who that fielder is, just give that complete picture of what's happened. And then you can go on to the other stuff, the analysis, the stories. So you've got to get the fundamentals right. And, of course, give the score as well on radio. So frustrating for people when they turn on and they don't know what the score is. I mean, sometimes it's quite fun, actually, if you're listening. I've done it myself. If you're listening under the covers and there's a test match in Australia and you try to guess the position of the match from the way the commentators are talking before they've 
given the score. And that's a bit like, you know, being a bit of a detective. But listeners always say, give us the score. We want to know the score. Well, certainly you've had to, to announce some strange scores in the last few days, 287 for 13, because of that strange setup of those warm-up games. Yeah, I'm, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to the day-night test match at, at Eden Park. You, 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 you mentioned it is, it is odd ground. I mean, it's a rugby ground, and you've got these short, straight boundaries. It's an odd configuration of ground. It, it provides a different test for the, for the players, for the bowlers and, and the batsmen. What I really hope is that people turn up to watch. This is the first day-night test match in New Zealand. That, I mean, they're trying to sell it. They're coming towards the end of the season. There hasn't been a great deal of test match cricket in New Zealand this summer. Can day-night test cricket stand up here in New Zealand? England are, are attractive opponents. They're seen as attractive opponents out here. What I really hope, well, I'm not expecting massive crowds, but I just hope the crowds are decent enough to give the game an atmosphere. What will be really disappointing is if we only have a few thousand in the ground. A few thousand people at Eden Park will will feel like the the, the game is almost rattling around in it. Well, I'll try and get my friend who lives right out the back of the ground to get up on top of his fence and invite a few mates around and and shout at the top of his voice when anything happens to just add a bit to the atmosphere. What we're planning to do, by the way, here is uh, do a a shorter podcast after each day's play of the first test, the the pink ball test, as we did in the Ashes. So Simon and I will will get together and discuss what's happened after the first day's play sometime early on Thursday morning English time to review the events of the first day's play. So look forward to speaking to you then and thanks for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network.